Welcome to Through the Bible with Pastor Michael, a podcast from First Baptist Church in Mustang, Oklahoma. Here's Pastor Michael. Good morning. Today is January, day 20. We are reading Mark 10 through 12, and then Psalm 19. Again, one of the reasons why I really enjoy this reading plan is because of being able to read through books of the Bible pretty quickly, uh, which I think is helpful. Sometimes, even even for those of us who are um, expository preachers, say, for example, you're, you're teaching the book of Ephesians. Uh, you, you can go through the book of Ephesians in six to ten weeks, or you can go through Ephesians in three to six months, or you can go through Ephesians in a year, for sure. Um, and sometimes what can happen is you go so slow because you're trying to get as much depth as possible, which is good, um, but sometimes you can go through a book of the Bible if you're preaching on Sunday, and you go through this book and you have week after week after week that's good and helpful and deep and rich, but when you get to the end of the book, your, your people may not fully understand what that whole book is about as a whole. We, we've broken into so many individual parts that sometimes it's hard to get the whole picture. So if you're preaching through Ephesians and it takes you a year to get through it, every single Sunday could be very, very good and very helpful. But after a year, your people may not know the whole quick uh, flow and be able to articulate concisely and precisely what uh, the, the argument in Ephesians is about. Because of that, it's helpful, in my opinion, to preach slowly and get as much depth and richness as possible, but also to read through the books of the Bible quickly. And, and by doing that, you're able to get the best of both worlds. You sit down, you read Ephesians, six chapters, you can read the whole thing in 12 to 15 minutes, and you know exactly what Ephesians is about. And then you study it slowly on a Sunday, um, if you're walking through that book, for example, and you're able to, to drill down very, very deeply into the richness of that book. So uh, I, I think it's great to teach purposefully and methodically and slowly, but I think it's also helpful to read in, in big sweeping um, chunks to be able to get the, the flow of the book. All that to say, uh, I really enjoy this reading plan because uh, we've already read through Genesis quickly and now here we are, um, we'll be through with, with Mark in just uh, a day or two. And so we're able to, to get the flow of that um, gospel writer as Mark is pinning this. Uh, we're able to get this very quickly. So uh, I hope you are enjoying uh, the, the flow of this reading plan. So let's look today at five uh, observations and five applications from our reading. Number one, the disciples discouraged the children from coming to Jesus, but he welcomed them. Um, it really is a beautiful part here in chapter 10. Verse 13 begins, though, this way, that they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. That seems so strange to our, to our ears to hear, that the disciples are rebuking the children. And, and what we have is this part of, of human nature that, that just really wants to keep special things to ourselves sometimes, wants everything to be very organized and very quiet and very clean. And where children come, it gets a little bit noisy, gets a little bit messy. Um, but this is a great reminder for us that, that Jesus cared about children. He welcomed children. 
Uh, he, he loved them. He says in verse 16, he took them in his arms and he blessed them. Children were welcome in the presence of Jesus. And I think it's important for us in our lives as individuals to, to care about children, to love them, to be faithful to them, to teach them well, to never lead them astray, to not lie to them, to not deceive them, to not uh, fail to make time for them. Um, and as a church, the same thing is true. A, a church must love its children. But when I say love its children, I, I don't mean by that that we must entertain them. Uh, I mean by that we must love them enough to teach them and to disciple them. Uh, our, our children are able to, um, to rise to our expectations. Moms and dads that expect their children to listen and to participate in worship services learn to quickly do that. Um, where children are expected to sing and to have an open Bible and to pay attention the children rise to that expectation. And one of the great ways to show love and, and care for our children is to continually bring them to Jesus. Bring them to Jesus as you pray as a family. Bring them to Jesus as you teach your children God's Word. Bring them to Jesus by bringing them to church. And, and as the church members, we, we need to, to love our children and love our parents of young children. Um, those of us that are older, like I am now, and, and children are grown, we should remember what it's like when we were trying to teach and train our children and give compassion and grace and patience to young families in our church. You want your church to be a place where children are loved, where children are welcomed, where they're not viewed as in the way or a nuisance. When we do that, we make the same mistake the disciples made. Um, and so it's it's worth noting that Jesus... Um, cared for children, and that uh, he welcomed them. Number two, salvation is impossible with men, but it's possible with God. Chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And this great statement that all things are possible with God is actually in context. That's Jesus' answer to the question of then who can be saved. Jesus says it's not about being religious, it's not about being rich, it's not about notoriety, it's not about any of these earthly things. And they were exceedingly astonished, verse 26 says, and they said, then who can be saved? And Jesus' answer is, with man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. Which is why, as believers, we should be quick to give all the glory, all the praise, all the credit for our salvation to God and to God alone. Number three, the disciples were so busy arguing about which of them was the greatest, they were missing Christ's instruction on his upcoming crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus, in verses 32 to 34, uh, is talking to them about the things that are going to happen to him. He's going to be mocked and spit on and flogged, and they're going to kill him, and after three days, he will rise. And then right on the heels of this, Mark records for us that the disciples were arguing about which of them was the greatest and who can sit on the right and the left in the kingdom. And because they were so consumed with themselves, they were missing his instruction. I think that happens to us too. Uh, sometimes we're so concerned with our own problems and issues that when we read our Bible, we're not really listening 
Sometimes we come to church where the Bible's being taught and we're so um, concerned about our, our deadlines for the next week or things that we've got to try to get done that, that we miss what the Lord wants to say to us in His Word. We don't want to make that mistake. Fourthly, Jesus curses the fig tree as a metaphor for spiritually dead Israel. Uh, in chapter 11, verses 12 to 14, there's a fig tree and Jesus sees it. Now we're in April and uh, a couple of months away from when the fig tree, the figs would be in, in, in full, um, full go there. But what we do know is that even before um, they would be fully ripened, there would be these small um, little knobs of them that would appear called pegim. And what would happen is even a couple of months before the fig tree would be, would be fully going, there would be these small little uh, precursors that would be there that you could grab and, and you could eat. And the tree had all of its leaves. And so because all the leaves were there, the pegim should have been there. And when Jesus sees that, he uses that as a, as a metaphor of Israel. That Israel's got all the leaves from a distance. It looks, it looks healthy, it looks strong, it looks vibrant, it looks beautiful. But then when you get up close to it, what you see is there's no fruit. The, the picture of the fig tree is a picture of Israel being full of ceremony. And empty and absent of fruit. It is, it's actually uh, quite a devastating metaphor that, that the Lord gives there. Uh, and then fifthly, we are to pray with faith and belief, but also to forgive others as we make our requests to God. Chapter 11, verse 25, he's teaching on prayer. And he says in verse 25, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so let your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Yes, we are to pray with faith. Yes, we're to pray with belief. But we're also, as we pray, to be quick to forgive. One of the hallmarks of walking with Jesus is that you are quick to forgive. One of the characteristics of someone who truly is trusting in the Lord is that we pray with faith, believing that God hears us and believing that God moves in response to our prayers. But one of the ways you can tell our faith is sincere is that God's grace has so transformed us that we are quick to forgive. Five applications from reading today. Number one, do not walk away from Christ, for there is nowhere else to go. Uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 22 Speaking of the rich young ruler here, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. There he was, face to face, eye to eye with the Savior, and he just loved his stuff too much. He owned much stuff. We could say it even more precisely. The stuff owned him, and because it did, he walked away sorrowful. We don't want to walk away from Christ. There's nowhere else to go. Second, Jesus walked in front of the crowd on his way to Jerusalem because he was not afraid of men. Here's our application. And because of his work, neither should we. We should not be afraid of men either. It's a small detail in chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. He was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed 
and those who followed were afraid. Now that's an interesting detail that Jesus was walking ahead of them. Uh, It shows that he's full of resolve. It shows that he's full of confidence. Um, At this point, they're they're just about a week away from Passover, um, leading up to the triumphal entry. Uh, Jesus, his disciples, and, and the others are on the journey with them, are on their way to Jerusalem. They go to Jericho. Um, he meets Bartimaeus. Uh, he meets Zacchaeus. And then they're going to walk toward Jerusalem. And remember, um, Jesus has been prophesying about his death. Um, he, he's been prophesying about um, how the people are wanting to, to kill him. And yet Jesus is not hiding and afraid. He's walking out in front of them. He leads the way. It really is, is, a, is a remarkable statement of the resolve of Jesus. And because Jesus is not afraid of man, neither should we be because we are on his side. And, and more importantly, he is on our side as our Lord and as our Savior. Third application, Jesus deals with sin and sinners. Chapter 11, verse 15, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers. Um, Jesus is there in the temple and he sees that that what's happening here is that the, the religious leaders are no longer trying to lead out in worship. It's all just about how can we rob the people, take advantage of the people. It's legalized extortion is all that's going on here. And and the religious leaders are now just getting rich off of the people. And Jesus deals with that sin, and he deals with the sinners. Never forget that. God is not mocked. He deals with sin, and he deals with sinners. Number four, the people of God are a praying people. Again, chapter 11, verse 17, he says, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer? The people of God are a praying people. Um, That prayer should epitomize our life individually. Prayer should uh, be a a hallmark of our churches. Uh, We should be a praying people. This is the expectation of God's people in the Old Testament and New Testament that the house of God is a house of prayer. Uh, And that should be true of us. And then fifthly, uh, we have everlasting life because our God is the God of the living. In chapter 12, uh, in verse 27, uh, it says, He is not the God of the dead, but He's the God of the living. And right before that, it says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. It's very interesting. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Next sentence. I'm not the God of the dead, but I'm the God of the living. Meaning Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living. Why? Because all of us are going to live for eternity, either in judgment or in a place of blessing with the Lord in heaven. Um, and so we need to remember that, that we have eternal life. We have um, eternal assurance because our God is the God of the living, uh, which reminds us that the most important part of our life is eternity. 
that everything we do in this life on this earth is is preparing us for our eternal home. Uh, I think of Hebrews 13, 14, here, speaking of earth and life now, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city which is to come. Here, this life, we have no lasting city. This life is short. It's temporary. You get 16 years or maybe 46 years or maybe 76 years or maybe even 106 years. That's it. That's it. It's, it's a vapor. It's a mist. Here today, gone tomorrow, the book of James says. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city which is to come. We are looking forward to, anticipating, living with eternity in mind. Why? Because he is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Why? Because his people live forever. And we have eternal life because of that great truth. And then finally, uh, Psalm 19, a summary, one of my very favorite psalms. Um, read it slowly, read it carefully, read it prayerfully as you read it today. God's word is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And great blessing is found in obeying his word. Yes, we're blessed to read his word. Yes, we're blessed to study his word. But true blessing and true joy is found in obeying his word. So as you've read, you've read the Bible today, that's good, that's right, that's helpful. But the great blessing comes not when you've read it and closed it. The great blessing comes when you've read it, meditated on it, and then you go do what it says. Again, the book of James says, Do not be hearers of the word only so deceiving yourselves. He says succinctly, do what it says. So that's where great blessing is found, as Psalm 19 reminds us. All right, uh, keep reading, keep obeying, keep worshiping, keep enjoying uh, the Lord speaking to us through his word. God bless.